Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. You're here with your host, Auntie Vice. It's good to be back. We're going into the holiday season, which is fun for some of us and not so fun for others of us. I have connected with Kathy Reisenwitz. She writes the newsletter Sex in the State. We were on uh, Nika Sherell's The It Cast, talking about sex work, and she has some amazing stuff to say. I was thrilled to discover her letter. She's been writing a lot about loneliness, so that's one of the things we'll delve into today. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. So for for our listeners, why don't you give them just a little bit of background about uh, what you do, what you've done, and how you got to do so much in-depth work around sex work and loneliness and everything in, in this fabulous newsletter? Yeah, uh, it's a long and winding story, but I'll try to summarize it uh, in a semi-pithy way, which is I grew up evangelical in the deep South and Alabama, uh, and then got um, really into sex positive feminism, deconstructed how I was raised around sex and gender, um, got really into libertarianism, wanted to understand why libertarianism wasn't appealing to anyone outside of like, cis het, wealthy, white, able-bodied men. And um, so that got me even, you know, more acquainted with racism and sexism and the other structural impediments to people succeeding in America. Um, and then, yeah, I've just focused my writing since then on kind of taking sex positive feminist uh, intersectional lens toward economics, culture, politics. Um, and then lately, I've been thinking a lot about masculinity and how that is impacting the woes of native born men, um, what's going on with them, and also loneliness. And obviously, there's a lot of overlap between those two topics as well. So there's a lot to unpack there, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you actually fall in line with quite a number of folks I've had on my show where you were raised evangelical and conservative, and you found uh, a way out of it, right? Yes. Uh, what and it, it's hard. They're, being raised evangelical, I was too. There's a lot of trauma that comes with that. There's a lot of programming around sex, around your body, especially if you're in a female body, heaven forbid. Uh, how did you start finding a process to unpack that and see what it meant to you and not go deeper into the church? Yeah, I think it was a few things. One thing that was definitely seminal was my sister coming out 
as a lesbian. And when she was in high school, I was in college. And that got me really thinking about, okay, what does the Bible really say about homosexuality? What are some like alternative interpretations of what I've been taught about what the Bible says about it? And that along with when I was in college, I just kind of naturally stopped going to church as much. My best friend at the time took me to her Sunday school. And I remember the teacher saying, women can't teach men biblical things. And it was based on this like one passage from, you know, one of Paul's letters uh, in the New Testament. And I was like, this, this doesn't seem right. Like, this just doesn't make any sense to me. Same with like my sister not being allowed to like get married and, but me being able to get married because I like men and she likes, well, I like both, but she likes women only. So I started to read about like the fact that these letters from Paul were letters to specific churches at specific times. Like they weren't meant to be, you know, universal declarations of uh, immoral ethical law. And then I took, I had to take, actually, I went to a Baptist college and I had to take a biblical perspectives class. And I grew up going to church three times a week, but I'd never like learned what the Bible actually was, like how it came to be, the history of the Bible. And that was the first time I was exposed to that. And so those three things in college were definitely pretty important. But then I think what really sealed the deal for me to move away from evangelical Christianity was... I got married right after graduation, lost my virginity on my wedding night. And I, four years later, was like, I think I want to get divorced. And, you know, we didn't have any kids. We didn't have like a lot of property. There's really no reason for us to stay married if we didn't want to stay married. Um, And I've been telling him like, hey, I want to go to counseling like the whole time because the problem we had four years in was the problem we had the day we got married. And he would never go. But then finally he was like, okay, I'll go, but it has to be the preacher and his wife of the church that he'd really wanted to go to. It's funny as we like over the course of our relationship, I got less religious and he got more like progressively over time. We just kind of like switched at some point. So he'd been wanting to go to this church. I've been going with him. So we sat down with the pastor and his wife and all they wanted to talk about was my relationship with Jesus. And I'm like, this is not the issue. Like this is, you know, like, Um, we can talk about that later. And I just realized that like, they didn't care what was best for me or him. They had a view of what was right. And it was right for us to stay married. And I just thought like, do I believe that enough to stay in a marriage I don't want to be in for the rest of my life? And I was like, no, no, I don't. So that was really like the start of my, like hardcore deconstructing evangelical Christianity. With me and with quite a few of our guests, most of the extended family is very evangelical. Has it changed your relationship with your your parents and your extended family, or are they able to accept that you have different views? I'm extremely lucky that my family is going to love me and my sister, no matter what. It's kind of a joke for a while, because like, she was a lesbian who worked in cannabis and I was a sex worker who like openly did drugs. And so we were just like in a competition to see who could horrify our family more. But no, I mean, they, they are like, you know, we're not going to improve everything you do, but we're not going to stop loving you because you make different choices. So we're, we're super lucky. And like my whole family came to my sister's wedding and supported her, which was, which is really cool. That's amazing. Your sister sounds like my sister and I, because I do my my end of things, and my sister converted to Islam and married a guy from Morocco. And yeah, we we 
joke that we compete for the bottom rung of the family competitively. <laughs> <laughs> Who can be the, and, the blackest sheep? Sheep, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's uh, like I was winning because I had married a, a lesbian and I was going to college back east and teaching liberal politics. And then she converted to Islam and, and had a <laughs> child that they raised in the church. And it's like, oh, gotta, up, gotta figure out another way. Up the <laughs> my, ante. my parents have have come around and said, well, at least we were the only ones who did something right. Um, because <laughs> the rest of my family is still very evangelical. Uh, so you, you tackle one thing that is very intertwined, but a lot of people don't necessarily see it from the start is you deal a lot with race and, you know, systematic racism and power in, in your work. And you've had this evangelical background and often in this country, that evangelical religion and racism is very entwined. Um, yeah. What have you found as you've as you started delving into the way race plays out in this country? What, what were some of the things that were really eye-opening to you? Oh, man. I mean, probably reading Jesus and John Wayne was one of the most eye-opening experiences of my deconstruction because it, you know, it, evangelical Christianity was the water I swam in, you know, it wasn't something that I like thought about in as being diff. like in certain ways I would think about it being different from, you know, mainstream culture, mostly in ways I was told to think about it being different and from mainstream culture, but to notice these things that were different and like the history of why the the author does a really amazing job of like explaining the history of, of white evangelical Christianity in America. Some of the things that I've noticed, I mean, I would say that like the racism wasn't super overt within the church, but there was definitely a lack of like any kind of recognition of, of racism or the racist history of particularly the Southern Baptist church. And there's like a, like a subtle racism. And for example, I went back. I, so my, my stepsister goes to church and she invited me um, to go with her. And I went a couple Sundays ago to the church. We actually like went to in high school and it's got a new pastor now, but he was preaching on like second Thessalonians where Paul's talking about um, if a man doesn't work, he does not work, then he shall not eat. And it's like, first of all, this is talking about a very specific instance of a particular group of people in a particular church causing trouble. Um, this is not a moral universal for all time. It's certainly not a thing you base public policy on. You know, it's like Jesus said, feed them, clothe them. You know, mm -hmm. but we're going to focus on Paul talking about a particular, you know, Jesus was clearly talking about like, this is a universal moral declaration anyway, but it's the, it's the, it's the racism in this view that, you know, us versus them, us being like the white, you know, working productive people and the them being like the non-white uh, taking class. And, you know, it, it's, um, that's kind of more the racism that I experienced, but, you know, I, there was so much racism that I was completely unaware of, like, honestly, following black women on Twitter 
after trying to understand how to make libertarianism appeal to them, like opened my eyes. I was like, oh shit, like this is what privilege is. Like this is what it means to not know and like why I didn't know. And so I'm, I'm sure if you like transported me back in time to, you know, early 2000s, late 90s evangelical churches, I'd be, I'd see a lot more overt racism. It's just that like, it was so, you know, it's hard to see what you aren't taught to see. Exactly. Exactly. And growing up white, you often don't talk about race. We never talked about it in my family. And yeah, it's very eye-opening as you, you start to see that, that that's not how the rest of the world lives. Right. So you talk about, you know, how these these biblical verses get cast as a wider net and worked into it. It's been really interesting for me to watch the last election and Biden talk about saving the soul for America and the fight for the soul of America, because it uses religious connotation and intertwines it with politics. And he obviously is coming from a Catholic perspective. On, on the, the the soul, but utilizing that language. Do you have any thoughts on how that religious component has shaped our, our discussion around politics in the last couple of years? I am so baffled by the, the entwining of religion and politics in America particularly in the Trump era. I, I'm, I've been baffled as I've seen these Christians who thought that Bill Clinton having an affair with an intern was the absolute end of the world, just be, ignore, you know, sexual assault uh, and just crass. Um, I don't know, it's just... It's very, I mean, that's why Jesus and John Wayne was written, was to explain why evangelical Christianity would embrace someone like Trump and how, you know, masculinity entwines with, you know, how we see all these things. But I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, like it seemed to work, you know, talking about the soul of America, you know, this kind of like ooey-gooey messaging seems to be effective. and. um you don't want to argue with results, but it does the extent to which America is becoming like very overtly theocratic, especially the Supreme Court, especially the Republican side, um, where we have more and more politicians like openly advocating for theocracy. We had to take a break from the recording for reasons, and we're we're back with Kathy. So let's pick up with where we were. What we were talking about is you had been exploring masculinity, and we had started to touch on the idea of masculinity. What launched you into that search? Because it's not something that has a lot of attention, especially from people who aren't men. That's a great question. Um, maybe sex work. Uh, had me thinking about men. I mean, I've always kind of loved men. I've always been very horny. Um, and I think I've always been fascinated by men as well because I didn't grow up with my dad at home. Um, 
he was very involved 30 minutes away, but still he wasn't in the house. And um, I didn't have any brothers and I didn't really have any like cousins nearby. So men were kind of a mystery to me. And I think I kind of gravitate toward what I think is getting less attention than it deserves just in general. When I think about things that I like to think about and, you know, I'd already been focused on sex and gender for a long time. I'd already been identifying as, identifying as a feminist for a, lo- a long time. I'd already noticed how there's this idea that feminism is anti-men, which I think is silly, um, and how sexism hurts men, um, which is true and I think important to talk about. And so I think it's a mix of like already caring about sex and gender, having a contrarian viewpoint, being very horny, doing sex work being curious about men from my upbringing. Like, I think all those things kind of came together. And I think it's something that I've been focused on for a while. I got really into it. I was in DC in, I want to say 2012. Um, I was new to to DC and the Heritage Foundation invited me to speak on a panel about the rise of the female breadwinner. And I didn't know a lot about heritage or the conservative think tank sphere at that time. And so I went on and I was like excited to talk about this like cool new development of like the rise of the female breadwinner. And it just turned into an hour of them shitting on single mothers. And I was raised by a single mother, uh, as you could tell from my dad not being in the home. And uh, I was really put off by this. And it got me on a path toward thinking about why are conservatives, you know, saying women should just get married, poor women should just get married, like that'll just solve everybody's problems. Okay, well, what are the barriers to that? One of the big barriers to that that I found out pretty quickly is that like, men's average wages are decreasing and male labor force participation is decreasing, or sorry, male wages are stagnating. Um labor force participation is decreasing. Women are earning more degrees than men. And so I think that panel really also kind of started me off on a path of like what's going on with men um, on average. And so I've been watching like men were in a bad state in 2013. I think it's gotten worse. Like all the stats that I was looking at, then a lot of them have gotten worse. And then we have the added issue of like, Trumpism and the rise of authoritarianism and fascism like here and abroad. And you see a lot of male support for that and especially support among men with status anxiety, which I think is, you know, again, related to the whole loneliness, lack of uh, place in society, um, yada, yada. Well, and there's so much conversation around what masculinity is. Uh, I don't know if you spend much time on Twitter. But in the last month or so, there's been this barrage of men declaring themselves as alpha male and, and all of that, which is the guys proclaiming that are just, it's like, you know, when you're in the BDSM scene, having somebody, you know, name on FetLife, Dommy Dom McToppy Top, like it's ridiculous. <laughs> uh, but there's there's this need to prove masculinity in a very traditional, toxic sense, especially by men who feel insecure in their roles so and there's so much of that that's tied up in violence um as well like it it promotes the idea that men solve problems with violence and so how do we even begin to break that down and address that for because men are not used to sitting around and 
breaking down their emotions. This is not something we teach boys. How do we, how do we even start with this? Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot. And I think that one of the things that is going to be useful is I think similar to how feminism arose, I think largely with the goal of let's remove the barriers to women's participation in traditionally male spheres, like paid work, obviously, education, sports, like these are things that women were excluded from and wanted to have access to. I think that we need a similar movement for men, but I think that the goal would be to get them access to kind of like education and pay and paid work for women. I think it's um, emotional and domestic labor for men, right? That these are things that men are not socialized to be good at. And that I think the, the lack of uh, facility with th- this kind of labor is harming them in every aspect of their lives. And that whereas before their tremendous advantage in education and paid labor meant that they could be okay, even if they weren't great at domestic and emotional labor, that advantage is decreasing, but their facility with the other is not increasing. And so they're just uh, increasingly kind of placeless. Their men are more lonely on average than women. Uh, men benefit more from marriage than women across a lot of different axes. Um, and so how do we, A, make men more marriageable on average? Well, if they're better at doing domestic and emotional labor, they're obviously going to be better partners, even if they don't make any more money. Um, and B, how do we make men okay whether they get married or not? And, you know, one of the biggest benefits to marriage for men is the social connection, um, is all the emotional and domestic labor that their wives provide. Well, if they're able to do that for themselves and each other, with or without women, they're obviously going to be better off in total. So I think, yeah, I I think we need to teach men and boys, um, you know, emotional and domestic skills. We need to make it okay for men to be good at emotional labor and domestic labor. I think that there's society currently punishes men for performing femininity far more than it punishes women for performing masculinity. I believe that very strongly. I think if you look at movies, TV, you know, you see a lot of representations of women performing masculinity that are celebrated and you don't see the opposite more now than ever, but um, still nothing comparatively, you know, just in the terminology we use, we call feminine men sissies and we call masculine women tomboys, like which has more stigma attached to it, which is more acceptable, like a woman who sometimes engages in homosexual behavior or a man who does the same, like it's just it's not equal. And so, you know, obviously, like as a society, I think we need to stop stigmatizing men who perform anything other than, you know, traditional masculinity. I think there is opportunity to change the way education works. I think education is really, really biased against um, boys and men right now. So that's, that's a huge problem. And, but yeah, I think like, there's a lot of conversation around like men kind of pulling themselves up from their bootstraps and like being different. And I think that's, you know, good, important, helpful. But at the end of the day, these are like larger than individual problems. These are systemic problems and we need to think about them systemically as well. 
We do. We do. And I know certain school districts have started focusing on things like teaching meditation and time out and mindfulness techniques. And those work, you know, those tend to be focused on the lower grades, but go away by high school. Right. And then we, we're still funneling in. So there's a long way to go. One of the things you brought up repeatedly, too, is loneliness. And by all measures, we're in an epidemic of loneliness that was only exacerbated by the pandemic. This was present beforehand and is now people are feeling really isolated. And it's more than just, hey, you should reach out to a friend and talk. That doesn't solve it. So how do we start to address loneliness as a societal issue? Yeah, that's a great question and something I've been thinking a lot about because Again, most of the advice is aimed at individuals, how you as an individual can become less lonely. And again, I think that's good and helpful. Again, I think we need to start thinking systemically. I mean, I'm biased as like a hardcore urbanist, but I do think that the way that we've set up our cities and suburbs and exurbs is like extremely um bad for connection like okay you think about the average american you like get in your car in the morning and drive by yourself to work somewhere between 20 and like 20 minutes and two hours you're spending on the road by yourself you get to your office right you have like superficial relationships there and then you do your commute home to your single family home and then you sit with your nuclear family and like that's basically your whole life, unless you're involved in like church or PTA or one of those kinds of institutions, you really don't have a lot of opportunities for civil society. And um, so I think that like building a more um, multi-generational housing situations would be like a really great thing. I think it would be better for the parents to have more support. I think it would be better for the grandparents because older people tend to be the most lonely. And so I think that would be helpful. I think living in dense walkable communities where you're not commuting in a car, where you're like walking to get the groceries and walking to to do things would would facilitate the kind of interactions that can lead to friendships and can make us feel less lonely and isolated. But I also think that there's a problem with the erosion of civil society more generally. The book called Alienated America, I think is like really good about this. It's a book about why certain um uh places went for Trump versus another candidate in the primaries uh another republican candidate and what tim carney the author found was that one of the huge predictors was whether someone agreed with the statement the american dream is dead and one of the big predictors of whether someone agreed with that statement was was there a thriving were there thriving opportunities for healthy civil society in their communities. And the truth is that like in most of America, the primary like ways that people do civil society are PTA, church, and immigrant groups. And one of the big problems is uh, with the way that the economy has moved toward information and services and away from agriculture and manufacturing, is a lot of these towns are experiencing a tremendous amount of brain drain. So everyone with any kind of capability and ambition leaves for one of like 10 large U.S. cities. And then there's no one to lead the PTA. There's no one to lead the churches. And so these, these you know, institutions of civil society are 
kind of hollowed out. And then when you move to a big city, as I did, it's, it's not obvious how to break in always, you know, like I showed up to San Francisco. I mean, in DC, it was obvious because like I was there for a political job and there were a lot of people there for a political job. So I just like went to the happy hours. But in San Francisco, for example, like I didn't move there for a job. I moved there for two partners. And so it's like, how was I supposed to make friends? Like, you know, uh, people are making it up as they go along, but if you're not pretty motivated, uh, then it's, it's difficult. And so I think we need to think about what are the institutions? How do we strengthen them? How do we create new institutions that make it easy for people to meet each other and form close bonds? One of the things that comes up with that in the structure of civil society, it's a book that came out, uh, God, it was in, when I was in grad school, so it had to be in the early 2000s, was Bob Putnam's Bowling Alone, which looked at the breakdown of, of civil society and these these organizations in favor of these kind of isolated groups in, in suburbia and screen time. But it was also written before the explosion of social media. So there's a big conversation around our online friendships equivalent to in-person and with the work you've done does having a lot of online where people where you're exchanging regular dialogues i'm not just talking about your followers or whatever but where you're actually engaging in dialogues and stuff on these different platforms do you find that breaks through the loneliness or are people still feeling pretty isolated that's a good question and i think it's a difficult one to answer i don't have a straightforward answer to that question what i would say is that I would guess that all else equal in-person interaction is going to be superior to online interaction as far as, you know, there's a robust body of research showing that social connection is associated with greater happiness, greater greater physical health, greater mental health, slow, slower cognitive decline, like less depression, you know, yada, yada, yada. So, you know, if you're looking and you're saying, okay, person A is spending 20 hours a week socializing in person and person B is spending 20 hours a week socializing online, like, are the benefits to happiness, sleep quality, yada, yada, going to be equal? I would, I would guess no. Um, the caveat to that is that I think that one of the problems with the way Americans do civil society right now is, you know, the fact that it's a like church and immigrant um, uh, community dependent is that a lot of these churches and immigrant groups are really unfriendly to large swaths of the population. Um, so if like you're a gay person growing up in um, Salt Lake City, like it may be difficult for you to find community in person that doesn't make you feel that really makes you feel like in community um, as a, as your whole self. And I think for those people, especially 10 hours with people who can accept who they are online is superior to 10 hours with people who they have to hide who they are around. So I think the internet is like really, really important and helpful, um, especially for people who are, you know, for whatever reason, having to live in a geography where they're not able to connect with people as they are authentically. So I don't think that we should say like, oh, you know, social media is making people lonelier. Social media is like replacing uh, socialization. I think it's, it's a, it's an add-on and it's a benefit, 
but I think it's, it is all else equally even better for people to be able to, to be in those places in person, which is why I advocate for building more housing in dense cities so that these kids in Salt Lake City can afford to move to San Francisco and find a bunch of gay friends. Yeah. In California, we struggle with that because there's so much need for housing. I mean, housing prices out here are, are stupid, <laughs> but there's so many places where you could add housing. They're like, let's advocate for more housing, but not increase the density. And it's like, well, how are you going to do that? In most of these cities, we've used up a significant chunk of that land. And like you said, the multi-generational housing, the intentional communities can make a big difference. There's another, oh, you talk about being seen authentically for who you are. So a couple of weeks ago, we had Darren Campbell on the show and he was talking about, even though he grew up in Toronto, which is a relatively large city in Canada, there wasn't enough mass of gay men in his age range where he really felt seen. Like you'd go into gay bars, but because he's bigger bodied, didn't really feel seen there and that, you know, and it, different different aspects of it. How have you found communities that see who you are authentically? That's a, that's a difficult question. Yeah. I mean, I think (laughs) I was talking about this to someone recently and someone asked me, you know, how do you just put your stuff out there? Like you're, having or doing sex work or being a feminist or you're anti-racism. And the thing is like, once you start doing it, then you never have to worry about it because everyone who's going to have a problem with it is going to nope themselves out of your life. And it's just going to leave the people who are at least going to tolerate like who you really are. And so that's kind of what I've practiced unintentionally. I'm just like not very good at self-censorship censorship and, um, I'm very argumentative. And so, you know, I'm just kind of me and, and it's really worked out like incredibly well. Um, I also have like a shit ton of privilege. So, you know, that helps. But um, I think what I have found is that certain communities can, are going to really appreciate certain aspects of me and are willing to tolerate other aspects, vice versa. So I guess like one of the best examples is like, in DC, you know, I had an amazing group of friends who were similarly aligned politically, um, who just kind of ignored the um, sex worker, you know, sex positive feminist part of me, for the most part, I mean, some agreed, some disagreed, but mostly just didn't come up that much. Um, And then in SF, I had a group of people who were amazingly sex positive and you know, through orgies and, uh, you know, we're super into non-monogamy and some of them were able to ignore my politics and some of them weren't, you know? <laughs> uh, and so that's, I, I, I think it's very difficult for anyone who has, you know, uh, things that they care a lot about, you know, anyone who's like multifaceted to find any one group of people who's going to embrace all of them. But I think you can find, different groups of people who will embrace different aspects of you and tolerate the others. I think that's probably the best you can hope for. It's been my experience. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's, it's hard to be seen in your full, but to be with people who at times can really accept who you are is I find very empowering, even if it's only once or twice a year, you know, um, and see you in your fullness. Here's the thing too. Sorry, but 
then this is what I told the person I was speaking with. I said, there are 8 billion people on this planet, which means there are more people who are going to love the shit out of everything that you are exactly as you are, then you have time to connect with, which means you have no time for people who are not here for it. So just like show up as you are, like exactly as you are, because it's going to act as a filter for you. And that's really the thing you don't lack is potential people to connect with. The thing you do lack is time. I love that. I love that. So do you want to plug all the things? For sure, for sure. So the Substack is Sex in the State. If you Google Sex in the State, you'll find it. Or you can do kathyreisowitz.substack.com. That is C-A-T-H-Y-R-E-I-S-E-N-W-I-T-Z. I'm also on Twitter a lot, uh, at Kathy Reisenwitz. I'm on Instagram, at Kathy Reisenwitz 0F. I'm on OnlyFans, slash Kathy Reisenwitz. Pretty much any platform I'm on, I'm going to be at Kathy Reisenwitz. So check me out. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It was a wonderful conversation. Super important to have. And now, a moment of gratitude. I am currently grateful for my readers. Everyone who reads my work at all paid or unpaid. Obviously, I'm especially grateful to the paid subscribers. I just found out I am on Substack's bestsellers list. Um, And I just, it amazes me every day that people, like, again, what would we lack? Time. That people would spend their precious minutes, like, reading what I have to say is, is just always astounded me. And I'm so grateful to everyone who does and who's enabled me to make this my full-time gig. Um, I'm just beside myself. I can't believe how fortunate I am. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. If we like your review, we may even read it online. This has been an Auntie Vice production. Producer and host, Rebecca Blanton. Audio production by Sharon Smith. Music by David Manga. And more music by Sharon Smith. For more information about Fat Chicks on Top, please visit our website for all things Fat Chicks at fatchicksontop.com.